today on Ag News Daily. Uh, we call it the FP300. It's a 300 uh, kilogram per day um, anhydrous ammonia. Listeners, April 11th, 2023, Tuesday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. We got report day, Delaney. So not only is it beautiful, here in Central Iowa, but we've got some great news to bring to our listeners. We certainly do, Tanner. Well, good news in some aspects, maybe not so good in other areas. <laughs> well, we, uh, we'll tease them just for a little bit longer. We'll start today with a little bit of weather. Uh, obviously, we continue to see some red flag warnings. Uh, National Weather Service continues to talk about those uh, across the Midwest from central South Dakota all the way down to southwestern Texas. This spans from western Nebraska into northwestern Iowa, as well as parts of Kansas and eastern Colorado. It's uh, difficult there. Obviously, we talked a little bit yesterday about the hard red winter wheat growing in those areas where winds could be detrimental to the conditions of that wheat. There could be sustained gusts from 20 to 30 miles per hour uh, with the capacity to carry dirt and soil particles, which causes the biggest issue. Humidity is going to be low, uh, below 15 percent. And we could see uh, a significant time period of this type of weather which is not good, especially when you've got a fire that breaks out. So these red flag warnings are no joke, but there was a large explosion and fire that broke out on Fork Dairy in DeMitt, Texas, Monday night. Uh, it's unclear the start of that explosion, but by the time uh, it was at full force, the flames, I'm sorry, the smoke could be seen as far as 80 miles away. One staff member was injured. But this is, again, just another reminder to our listeners to make sure you take extra precautions during this dry and windy season to avoid a large scale fire and damage. And Tanner, right in that same vein there with weather, we've got our second weekly crop progress planting report as farmers in Illinois, Kansas, Kentucky, Missouri, North, North Carolina, Tennessee and Texas have started their 2023 corn crop. Illinois corn is one percent planted on pace with their five-year average. Kansas is 6% planted, Kentucky 5%. Missouri is ahead of both the five-year average and last year's average with currently 7% planted. And across the top 18 corn growing states, 3% of all U.S. corn is in the ground, according to the USDA. We also saw some oat crop progress in the past week. Iowa farmers planted 8% of the state's oats, and actually our oats just went in yesterday. So I guess we're not quite part of that 11% that got early planted there. But as far as winter wheat progress, we have seen winter wheat headed in six of the top 18 growing states so far. And conditions are still not super favorable in some parts of the country, Tanner. Uh, no excellent wheat reported in Idaho or South Dakota. Kansas, for example, reported 33% of their state's winter wheat crop in very poor conditions. So not seeing a lot of reprieve there for those top wheat growing states. Yeah, that's not uh, a lot of great news. Uh, Natalina Spence from Successful Farming caught back up with the Extreme Ag crew. Just give us a little bit of an update there. Chad Henderson out of Madison, Alabama says his corn planters have been running. They've also been, uh, they've finished spraying their wheat at flag leaf stage. So they've got some decent conditions in that 
portion of the country states that uh, they had about 400 acres of their corn planted before rain stopped them. Lee Lubers of South Dakota, uh, he's got the snow melting, at least. He sees he feels like they skipped a season, went straight from winter to pseudo summer. Talking now about these high temperatures and dry winds to where he's hopefully that it will uh, regenerate some of that winter planted wheat or fall planted wheat uh, to make sure that that pops up. So yeah, just a little bit there to continue to look across. But it is interesting, Delaney, like you talked about planting, picking up pace. Do you have a prediction between this report and next week's report? How much of a jump do you think we will see in planting progress? Mm. Oh man, we're at 3% this week. So I would say we're definitely gonna be in double digits by next week. I'm gonna say close to 15, maybe 12 to 15%. Oh, yeah, I was going to take the high side and go to 18. Okay. I was thinking maybe that 15 to 18. So we'll see. Maybe our listeners can keep track of that for us and hold us to it next week on the report. But what else you got for news? Well, of course, we had today's WASD report, Tanner, which we are recording here right after the WASD report was released. And as I mentioned, mixed bag, I would say, for agriculture. We were, of course, expecting to see South American production impacted or changed on this report. And we did see that happen. We saw Brazil's production for soybeans increased according to this report corn remained unchanged for the safrina corn crop and argentina corn came down uh, compared to what the trade was expecting so as you look at today's numbers the corn numbers here for april argentinian numbers were at 37 million metric tons 125 million metric tons for brazil The trade average was right at 37 and 126, so actually a little lower than what the trade was expecting there for Brazil's corn numbers. Soybean numbers came a little bit lower than what the trade was expecting. USDA came in at a 27 million metric ton number. The trade average was at 29. So we came down 5 million metric tons compared to February, or excuse me, compared to March's report, Tanner. So that should be fairly bullish here for the soybean markets. And then when you look at the U.S. balance sheet here for numbers today, nothing super major to report. Um, When you look at wheat and corn and soybean ending stocks, we saw that come in line pretty much with what the trade was expecting, a little higher than what the trade was expecting here on the soybean balance sheet. So that might cancel out the numbers we saw there from Argentina, but all in all, a pretty flat report, I would say, Tanner. Yeah, nothing exciting. I was trying to follow along as you were going through that and nothing really stuck out on our side uh, of my review as well. So let's get into a couple of cattle related articles today. Just a reminder to the producers that are listening or those that have family that suffered spring blizzards that might have resulted in calf losses. There are things that you can do, especially related to livestock indemnity payments. Just a couple of reminders that if uh, cattle were lost during that storm, you can re-familiarize yourself with the livestock indemnity program. The tips that were put out here by DTN is to be timely. You must mark your calendar because your report has to be filed within 30 days of your loss. Uh, You do this through your local FSA office. Make sure you have good documentation as far as the process goes. Eligible events are losses that fall in excess of normal mortality caused by adverse weather, disease, or attacks by animals. 
reintroduced to the wild. So obviously this is uh, for livestock that is cattle, poultry, swine, sheep, horses, goats, or bison. Uh, you do have to have ownership in these animals to be able to stake a claim. It does not matter uh, of vaccination status. Uh, and there is a limit, but it is best for you to go ahead and take a look at what that is when you talk to your local FSA office. Delaney, it's a pretty big deal. The 2022 guidelines had bulls at uh, just over $1,000 a head, cows at a little over $800 a head. And if you had fat cattle, in that area, it was $1,100 a head. So there's various different brackets there. And this is extremely important right now because we are seeing a continued historic price rally. We're looking right now at cash uh, negotiated cash cattle prices surging $10 in the last week to a record high price of $175.38 per hundred weight on Friday. USDA quoted steers at $174.62 and heifers at $175.38. This is higher than the previous record set in November of 2014. It looks like packers are still aggressive when buying. They bought over 103,000 head last week on negotiation balance. So uh, we'll continue to keep an eye on that. This week's slaughter numbers are expected to reach uh, a significant margin of nearly 630,000 head. That's uh, an improvement over last week at 603. So we'll continue to keep an eye on the cattle market but a couple of tips there for our cattle producers. Well, Tanner, next week I am hitting the road in Washington, D.C. I'll be there with the NAFB Association. And you bet we're sure going to talk about the farm bill because that is top of mind for a lot of folks right now, including our legislators out in Congress. The 2023 farm bill, Tanner, is expected to be the most expensive farm bill we have ever seen. But Congress said that additional funding is going to need to come through to be able to strengthen farm and food safety nets, according to Senate Agriculture Committee Chairman Debbie Stabenow and Republican John Bozeman. They said additional funding would allow a transition away from the repeated bailouts that we've seen here over the last few years that have cost more than $90 billion since 2018. They said by providing more budget flexibility, that would increase their authority on spending and should avoid these last ditch efforts to try and make good after big events happen like the trade war, COVID, pandemic relief funds, etc. So I am guessing that's going to be a top issue. We hear a lot of legislators share with us next week and we'll be sure to share here on the Ag News Daily podcast. Yeah, it, it'll continue to be something that we monitor because, you know, the farmer's safety net of crop insurance seems to be uh, one of the items that is always discussed. Obviously, net crop insurance indemnities have presented kind of a cyclical return for the government. Crop insurance performs, a, you know, at different rates across the entire country. But one of the things legislatures are continuing to monitor is how cyclical this is over the variety of all crops you know the most widely grown is corn soybeans wheat and cotton but if you look at the differences between those a couple of economists have been tasked with monitoring crop insurance subsidies tied with crop insurance indemnities so the payments that are made out so uh, ohio state university university of illinois are teaming up on providing the data to congress as they look at considering this that it is still a valuable tool that early releases from their reports is that it may not be as cyclical as expected to where the crops themselves may balance out. So it'd be interesting to see 
what recommendations come out of this. I assume we'll see that in the next couple of weeks. But that's the last piece I've got for today, Delaney. Well, yeah, and I'll add just one other quick piece of news to that, talking about indemnity payments there. But the University of Illinois Farm Doc Daily blog specifically did a survey recently looking at what, how American consumers would award farmers or grant farmers maybe additional indemnity or subsidy dollars. And they said that there is a very clear divide between farms that gross more than a million dollars a year and farms that gross less than a million dollars a year, saying that those farms grossing more than a million dollars per year are getting too much money from the government. And those small, what they call family farms are getting too little assistance. But really, when you think about gross cash income, a million dollars really isn't a lot in today's in today's dollars. No, it's not. And and that's an interesting, you know, it's a multiplier of dollars. For example, if you have more acres that you're farming, you're going to receive a larger payment. So yeah, very, very interesting to see what those results dictated. They certainly were, Tanner. But I tell you what, I think I am out of news now as well, other than looking at where the markets are at here at the midday. We're about 20 minutes post WASD here and corn lower on the board and soybeans are pushing higher. May corn's down two and a quarter cent at 651 and three quarters. New crop corn down three and three quarters cents here at the midday at 559. May soybeans up nine and a half cents at 1496 and three quarters. New crop beans added seven and a quarter cent here at the midday at 1317. Hard red May winter wheat is down two and a quarter cents at 873 and three quarters. And as we check over into the livestock markets here at the midday, June live cattle are down 12 and a half cents at a buck 6357. May feeders up 77 cents on the board at 206.40 and May lean hogs down 90 cents here at the midday at 81.95. Tanner, super excited to talk about a new carbon technology coming down the pipeline for farmers. So let's turn it over to that conversation. Well, as we continue to look at climate smart programs, especially as uh, you know, we look here in the United States, this administration has pushed really hard for farmers to look for alternative ways of doing business that are both environmentally friendly and sustainable. And we're talking about this very topic today with Fuel Positives CEO and board chair Ian Clifford that's based right around Waterloo, Canada. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. We're certainly excited to dig in and learn more about your background and also Fuel Positive. Yeah, thanks, Elaine. It's a pleasure to be uh, on the podcast with you. So, Ian, give us the 10,000-foot view. What is Fuel Positive? So, Fuel Positive, we're we're a Canadian-based technology company um, looking at carbon reduction technologies across a number of different industries. But really, about a couple of years ago, became very much focused on um, green agriculture technologies and and specifically on uh, a modular uh, containerized technology for producing uh, green ammonia on farm to be utilized as as fertilizer and and ultimately to be utilized as a f- uh, fossil fuel replacement. So that in the nutshell is is our ten thousand foot view. Um, we're just in the process of finishing commercializing our first uh, system, 
uh, which will be uh, on farm um, probably over the next couple of months at a an 11,000 acre uh, grain farm uh, just outside of Winnipeg, Manitoba. So that's what we're in the thick of right now, and uh, and getting really excited about um, about getting that that system obviously on farm and working. So, Ian, I mean, carbon has been a really hot topic here over the last few years, but I'm curious, what was your background or your company background before coming to Fuel Positive? And really, how did you guys decide to focus primarily on the carbon space? Well, sure. We've been doing we've been focused on um, zero emission technologies for a long time. Uh, We go all the way back to um, all the way back to the early 2000s when we were actually producing electric cars um, uh, in a, with, a different, uh, with a different name, same structure, but different name. Uh, we were Zen Motor Company back then. Uh, and we were also very interested in, in battery technologies as well. So we uh, invested heavily in a battery technology that's still under development. Um, very, very uh, significant breakthrough uh, energy storage technology. Uh, working with a group associated with NASA and um, and University of Arkansas, so very much focused on uh, on the future of of energy. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were introduced to the technology that I introduced at the top of the podcast, and that is, of course, focused on very much on agriculture. Um, it's a technology that was developed um, at Ontario Technology University, just outside of Toronto. Uh, and we acquired that intellectual property back in uh, 2021, uh, middle of 2021, and we've been commercializing it ever since. We've raised around $16 million to, to bring that to market. Uh, and as I said, we're just just at the completing stages of getting our first system, uh, first commercial system on farm. So, so that's the trajectory, a, a long history of of car- eliminating carbon, eliminating other pollutants, um, but very, very much focused on on green tech um, over the last uh, over the last fifteen years. So let's dive in then a little bit more and talk about the system that you mentioned. You mentioned specifically fertilizer and also fuel. So I'm curious to learn more about how you guys work within those two spaces for agriculture. Sure. So the first system um, or an individual system, uh, we call it the FP300. It's a 300 uh, kilogram per day um, anhydrous ammonia production system. So that's approximately 100 tons of output per year. So uh, of anhydrous. So the first farm it's going on to, as I mentioned, is an 11,000 acre grain farm. They use about 600 tons um, in their operation per year. So ultimately, they'll have a number of fuel positive systems on farm. Um, but we're starting with the one just to get that up and running and and you know fully certified and and all the specs checking out and everything else. Um, we've got a tremendous amount of interest from around the world, from farmers and from other sectors actually in in terms of our on-farm modular system. Um, the key to producing green ammonia, of course, is having access to green electricity. So um, so starting in Manitoba for us, uh, is is an easy entry point because the the grid in Manitoba is fully green. It's all most part hydroelectric, and it's a very low cost um, low cost electricity, anywhere from four to six cents uh, per kilowatt hour of, of electricity. So it's got it's got a lot of um, uh, it's got a lot of 
very positive um, aspects of our, you know, of our check boxes checked. Um, if you're in an area where you do not have access to a green grid, then you would be looking for on-farm or on-site renewables to produce electricity. So that's where wind and solar and geothermal and, and energy storage comes into the mix. Uh, and then those situations, you've got, you could have a system that, you know, is producing anhydrous ammonia for the energy cost is say three cents a kilowatt hour. You're going to produce a ton of anhydrous ammonia for, you know, call it four or $500. So very, very low cost, um, continuous supply, which is really important. Certainly when you look at certain sectors like potato farming and, and, uh, controlled environment farming, greenhouses, vertical farming, where they need a constant supply. So, um, so a very versatile uh, system, uh, but most importantly for the farmer, it locks in both supply and cost for decades, right? So these are multi-decade systems. They're, they're permanent installations. They're not designed to wear out after five years and be replaced. Mm. They're a permanent fixture on farm. Uh, and they produce, you know, 24-7 and, and store anhydrous um, ammonia on farm for for. for initially for fertilizer use. Um, you asked the question about fossil fuel replacement. So there's, it's not well known um, that uh, ammonia and hydrous ammonia is actually a very, very good fuel. So it's very, very high in hydrogen content. Uh, and it can be used both in internal combustion engines as a replacement for diesel or gasoline, but it can also be used in, um, in situations which is very common uh, in in uh, in grain farming, of course, and that's it for grain drying, where you're using propane or natural gas. We've even seen some coal-fired uh, grain <laughs> grain drying operations. So it's a plug-in. It's a plug-in for um, for replacing propane or natural gas um, for open open flame grain drying. So um, so that the farm that the system's going on to, that's one of our. One of our initial projects will also be the conversion of their propane system to uh, to burn green ammonia um, and burn it clean so that there's no NOx or SOx or other uh, greenhouse gas emissions associated with that combustion. So, so that's it in a nutshell. Um, and uh, like I said, the response has been phenomenal. Like we're we're getting one or two inquiries a day from all over the world for systems. So these are multiple system um, multiple system interests. So. Time's good, and uh, the need is, you know, profound. Obviously, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like COVID definitely heightened that understanding for farmers that hey, things like this, um, fertilizer in particular, those are not resources that we can constantly rely on. And especially as we see the push for carbon and being kind of a carbon neutral, this is coming. I think at a great time, like you mentioned there. Wanted to ask a, a. clarity question to some extent, Ian, but is the goal ultimately for farmers to be able to have this system on their farm and completely be self-sufficient when it comes to ammonia or propane, you know, fuel needs, or is it just to supplement what they're buying elsewhere? No, it's to be entirely self-sufficient. So the idea is to help farmers get off the supply chain um, in the sense that, as you know, I mean, if you're talking about anhydrous specifically, I mean, it's produced in huge centralized plants and then it's transported, you know, in some cases, thousands of miles to the end user. Uh, and our business case sort of flips that 
entirely on its head. It says farmers, you know, who who have the ultimate need should have ultimate control. Uh, in order to do that, they've got to produce it on farm. So, um, so as in the case of the first system that I mentioned, that they'll end up with probably five or six or maybe more fuel positive systems on farm. Um, and they will meet all of their fertilizer and ultimately um, a big chunk of their fossil fuel requirements. So the idea here is that we're trying to give farmers uh, as much independence as possible um, and as much self-sufficiency as possible so that they're not, um, you know, I'll, I'll use the word victims of the, of the supply chain and cost issues that are so profound, right? So that's, that's a big, big issue. Um, and, and it's a big part of the response as well is that we're getting, um, you know, all of this interest from farmers who are looking for that level of, of independence having been frustrated in many cases for decades um, by commodity pricing that, uh, and supply that has been completely unreliable. And since the war in Ukraine now, um, so cost prohibitive and, and supply chain prohibitive. So, so yeah, it, 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 again, it checks a lot of boxes in terms of what farmers um, are asking for today. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds that case. And I know you mentioned you are just kind of hitting the commercial pipeline now. So you don't have uh, farms yet that are using this system. But I'm curious, how will this be priced out for farmers in the future? Is it going to be a one time cost or some sort of service or subscription type fee? Right. So, the, I mean, we're exploring different business models. The, the initial um, the initial model that we're getting the most interest on is a, is a straight purchase. So it would be like an infrastructure type purchase. So a, a building or a grain silo or, you know, something significant that the farmer would amortize, you know, they price it and amortize it over decades as opposed to um, as opposed to a tractor or a combine or something like that. So it's more of an infrastructure purchase. Um, that being said, it's the way the return on investment works for farmers is it has a lot to do with you know, what is the cost of gray ammonia today? So what are they paying for their inputs today? Are they paying, you know, a thousand bucks a ton? Are they paying 2000 bucks a ton? What's, what are their supply issues and so on? Um, and then you tie it back into what is their operating cost? So if, you know, what is the cost per kilowatt hour of, of electricity that they're using? And that's the major input for our system. Uses a little bit of water, relatively speaking, but but the big, um, the big, uh, OPEX operating cost component is electricity. So the lower you can get your electricity costs, the lower you can produce a ton of anhydrous. Um, so it, it, like I said, it varies obviously from, from, you know, jurisdiction to jurisdiction geographically, uh, it depends. Is it a green grid to begin with? Um, and if it's a green grid, then the carbon credit aspect plays into the equation significantly. Uh, so there's a lot of variability in this. And, and what we do in our sales process now is it's, it's quite a, it's a relationship type sales. So we, you know, we start the conversation off, we get the core information from the end user, but then we look at solutions, right? And some solutions are very simple in, in areas where the grid is green and energy costs are low, uh, but in more in situations where there is no access to green electricity, then we have to look at other, um, other ways of powering the system, which of course then would include wind or solar and, 
And we're seeing, and you're probably seeing it too, more and more farmers are bringing um, renewables on farm, you know, to offset energy costs or even to power things independently. And, and, and that's ultimately where this will go. A farmer, you know, a farmer will look at this as, as a, a potential return on investment, you know, call it five year return on investment with anhydrous at, at current cost, uh, green, uh, rather gray anhydrous and, and then their operating costs can be incredibly low and they can produce a ton of ammonia at, uh, at a huge discount to market. That's the intention. So, um, yeah, so we're helping them, you know, model that. And, uh, and then ultimately the, you know, the proof is in the system. Uh, is it working as advertised? You know, can they talk to the farmer as opposed to talking to us? Obviously that's a key part of the selling proposition. So, um, but like I said, we're getting, you know, at this point, um, well over a hundred inquiries and, and more and more coming in every day. Well, I think that's a great segue then if any of our listeners are interested and would like to inquire about some further details, how is the best way to do that? Well, yeah, so absolutely check out the website and that's uh, fuelpositive.com. Um, and then if you're interested to, to explore the, the, the potential uh, further, then it's just an email and it's sales at uh, fuelpositive.com and um, our sales group will get back to you um, immediately and set up a, you know, an introductory call. Um, uh, at a certain point, we go under non-disclosure with potential uh, customers so we can get more, much more into the details of, of the system operations and, uh, and, and costing, of course. So, um, yeah, yeah. And then we'd, we'd love to hear from your audience. Obviously it's, uh, as you mentioned, it's extremely timely and, um, and, you know, we're doing our part to help farmers decarbonize uh, and not not make it punitive, you know, make it really positive and and uh, uh, both economically and and environmentally. So, um, yeah, we think we've got a, a really good solution here. Fantastic, Ian. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to learn more about this fuel positive and uh, all the work you guys are doing. there. really interesting stuff. So appreciate your time joining us today. Well, there you go. Thanks for handling that interview, Delaney. It's exciting to share new items with our listeners. Listeners, if you come across some new technology you want us to interview on a Tech Tuesday, please reach out to our social media platforms. You can find us almost everywhere and let us know who they are. Well, Delaney, for today, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.